You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. As Caitlin said, I'm, my name is Randy. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And uh, we're going to continue today through the book of Galatians in our series entitled Freedom. So when we look at where we have come to at this point, we've journeyed through the first two verses of the book of Galatians. And Paul has basically emphasized his personal testimony to this point, his calling by God, his acceptance as an apostle, and his defense of the gospel. And throughout all this, he makes it very clear that the main point of the entire letter is about one central question. Are we saved by what we do or by what Christ has done for us? And we now turn a corner as we begin chapter 3. Paul turns from solidifying his personal journey as a foundation for vindicating the charges by the Judaizers and their false teachings to provide and prove his point further through Scripture and even through the experience of the Galatians themselves. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Galatians 3? And we're going to read that together. It'll be up on the overhead. Galatians 3, the verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So before we begin to unwrap what these nine verses have to say, let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we read your word this morning and work through its meaning, we pray that what you are saying to us will become abundantly clear. And that through the Holy Spirit, these words will strengthen our relationship with you and our desire to be better. Amen. Questions. We all have them. Some of them are big ones like, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Other questions are used to gain knowledge or experience. Our four-year-old granddaughter asked her grandma this question. Grandma, what is it like up there in heaven? This prompted a terrific discussion with her on what the Bible indicates heaven will be like. At the end of the discussion, our granddaughter replied in a somewhat concerned tone, But Grandma, I think I need you to know something about me. I'm afraid of heights. Needless to say, it wasn't long afterward when she was five, she took a plane ride 
and informed her grandma she wasn't afraid of heights anymore. So let's begin our look this morning at the scriptures with a simple theological multi-choice question. How good do you have to be to go to heaven? And here's your choices. A, pretty good. B, really good. C, better than Uncle John. Forgive any Johns that are out there. And D, perfect. The answer is D. If you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. And I don't mean sort of perfect or mostly perfect or 80% perfect. Either you're perfect or you're not. The kicker in all of this is that 99% of the world believes the answer is either A, B, or C. Most people would say it's A. If I'm pretty good on the relative scale of goodness, surely I'll go to heaven. Most people are quick to compare themselves to Uncle John or Cousin Sally or somebody else. That's always an easy comparison because... We usually only compare ourselves to someone who we think isn't quite as good as we are. But that's not what God says. When God makes a comparison, he compares us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does that work out? Romans 3 verse 23 says it best. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the first nine verses of Galatians 3, Paul puts forward two arguments that lead us back to the question, how then can we be saved, by faith or by works? First, Paul begins chapter 3, the verses 1 to 5, with questions, just like we had this morning, but of a different sort. He uses what are called rhetorical questions. Now, a rhetorical question is simply one that is asked to make a point rather than elicit an answer. They are pretty forceful questions, too, as Paul is quite upset. And rightly so. He wants to know how the Galatians had been taught uh, to believe the false teachings that they were given. So let's read verses 1 through 5 again. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice the word foolish is brought up twice in these verses. Author J.B. Phillips, who authored the book, Your God Too Small, also authored a paraphrase of the Bible, and he begins his translation of verse 1 with the words, Oh, dear idiots. That's a little more harsh. Another writer suggests the word numbskulls. Pastor Greg also reminded me that the book of Proverbs speaks often of fools as the opposite of those who have wisdom. And next, Paul asks in verse 1, who bewitched them? The original Greek term used, ebaskinen, comes from the realm of black magic and refers to a spell or a hex or an evil eye. In Paul's mind, it is so inconceivable that the Galatians would turn back to the law after having come to Christ by faith that he thinks they have become 
bewitched. Paul knew they were under the influence of false teachings and false teachers who wanted to add the law of Moses to faith in Jesus Christ as a Jesus plus gospel. How else do you explain leaving the freedom of grace for the slavery of the law? By leaving grace to return to the law, the Galatians were totally ignoring the cross of Christ. Obviously, Paul is not saying that these people literally saw Jesus on the cross in Jerusalem some 20 years earlier. That is not the point. But they had forgotten how clearly Christ had been portrayed and visualized by Paul's preaching. So powerful was the truth that the Galatians had felt they had been there when he died. To leave grace was to abandon the Christ who had died for them. And in verse 2, by leaving grace, they were contradicting their own experience. Paul reminded them that they had been saved by grace through faith. Would they now conclude that God saves by faith, but they must somehow continue it by their good works? Will they go to heaven because, quote, God helps those who help themselves? That's man's saying, by the way, and it's not from the Bible. The very thought was absurd. Again, by leaving grace, verse 4 asks, if they have rendered their suffering as meaningless. No doubt, they, these believers had suffered much at the hands of their former friends in the pagan religions. Surely some had laughed at them, others ridiculed them. And perhaps some had even been cast out of their homes for the sake of Christ. Will they now count that as meaningless by going back to the law as the means of salvation? Finally, in verse 5, were they, by leaving grace, denying the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst? God had worked miracles among them and in them personally. They had seen the power of God both internally and externally. Prayers had been answered. Lives had been changed. Old habits broken, bad relationships ended, broken lives mended, marriages saved, families restored, the lost saved, sins forgiven. And all this by the grace of God at work, through the Spirit of God, who came to them as a result of their faith in Christ. So that's the choice that they were making. Paul's point is to remind them all of the wonderful things God had done for them in their conversion and in the days since then. How could going back to the law possibly improve their situation? The second part, Paul uses the example of Abraham in verses 6 through 9. So let's read through that again as well. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Using the example of Abraham was a masterstroke by Paul. Because the Judaizers would have considered Abraham the father of Jewish people. Paul's point in verse 6 is that Abraham was saved by faith when he believed God, and his faith was what counted as righteousness. The chronology of events in Abraham's journey is important. Abram, later to be called Abraham by God, began his calling 
in Genesis 12 in the Old Testament. As his part of the new covenant with God, Abraham was circumcised five chapters later in Genesis 17. However, interesting to note, the law of Moses wasn't given until about 430 years later. That means that Abraham was saved before the law and before he was circumcised. Paul then expands that point in verse 7 by pointing out that anyone who believes the gospel is a true child of Abraham. In Paul's mind, spiritual descent is more important than physical descent. One can even add that Abraham, at the point of his salvation, was actually a Gentile, as there was no Jewish people yet. Thus, there are physical descendants of Abraham who are not spiritual descendants because they don't believe the gospel, and there are Gentiles who are true sons and daughters of Abraham because they do believe the gospel. The thought is even expanded further in verses 8 and 9, where Paul declares that God always planned to justify the Gentiles by faith. He uses an amazing phrase to set forth this truth. He says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith means it was announced by God to Abraham in advance. And adding, in you shall all nations be blessed comes from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3. God's original call to Abraham had three parts. First, the promise of land for Abraham. Second, the promise of a great nation that would come from his descendants. And third, the promise of a blessing that would come through Abraham and his descendants, that all the nations be blessed. And it's interesting, if you fast forward some 2,000 years, you come to the very first verse of the New Testament, which reads in Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus was a true son of Abraham in the literal sense that he descended from the line of Abraham. Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus told his disciples to go and preach the gospel in every nation in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. The Great Commission... The Great Commission joins the call of Abraham, all nations be blessed, common threat, with the Christian gospel. It was always God's intention that the Gentiles should be justified by faith. And it was always God's intention to include all nations in his plan to bless the world. The important point we can draw from all of this is that the plan of salvation in every age is always by grace through faith, apart from human effort. God has only one plan of salvation, not two or three or four. Don't let anyone tell you that in the Old Testament, people were saved differently than in the New Testament. It's always by grace, always through faith, and always apart from human efforts to attain righteousness. In conclusion, Paul is once again emphasizing that there is nothing else to add to salvation than that which Jesus himself taught. What you do cannot perfect this salvation, for it is already perfected. What we are trying to do going forward is not trying to earn this salvation, but to live by faith in response to this salvation. If salvation is dependent upon my righteousness and my works, then I am lost. I need the grace of Jesus to declare this sinner righteous. I need to use the KISS acronym, Keep it simple, saint.
Paul also cautions us to watch out for false prophets, those who would lead us away from the true teaching of Jesus. Today they exist in abundance and come in a lot of devious forms. Philip Graham Riken comments, One of the devil's favorite stratagems is to distort the truth so that people can no longer tell the difference between the one true gospel and all the false alternatives. Many Bible passages warn against such teaching. Jesus himself warned of them in Matthew 24:11, when he said, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. He said it again in Mark 13, verses 21 and 22. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The elect is us. Paul again in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 and 14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful working workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And the apostle John joined in in 1 John 4, verse 1. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The living word of God is divine and is not found lacking anything. We just need to get in the habit of reading and studying it on a regular basis. Beware of man adding his own works-based additions. The book of Revelation ends with these words from Jesus. I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of its prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, there is some theological discussion as to whether Jesus is referring here to just the book of Revelation or to the entire book of the Bible. But it's interesting to note that Jesus' command here is very similar to the one God gave to Moses in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2 some 1,400 years earlier. Again, common thread, going from the old to the new. What is really apparent here is that Jesus is very serious about this, as was Paul with the Galatians. Obviously, we should be careful as well. We close with these words from Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to lead us in our walk with Jesus, and that we would be encouraged to search the scriptures for the wonderful truths you desire us to learn. Help us to use our gifts of discernment and wisdom when we come up against false teachings. 